Our reading for today is from John, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This ends our reading for today. It's good to need your help, God. Because you have never forsaken the one who puts his hope in you. You're not about to. You've never entertained the possibility because you are a God of loving kindness. Therein lies our confidence to bring our specific need for help right now. To process and respond to all that you are saying to us through the treasure that is the scriptures. Help us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would have you know, especially if you are not a Christian, but you're curious, you're asking questions, your friend brought you here, that the authority of the Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith. Okay? What, what we believe about Jesus and what, and what it means to follow him is not rooted in this church and our thoughts about God, but, but in God's revelation of himself. That means that, that this book, friends, is, is the word of God. God, not the, the musings of men. Those are different things. As the Apostle Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. He doesn't just make it work. 
or co-opt it for his activities. It comes from him, expresses him, and reveals him. And yes, the Bible was written by fallible men who broke God's laws just like we do. And yet, the Holy Spirit so, so moved on their hearts and minds that, that the words they wrote were exactly the words God wanted them to write. Okay? 2 Peter 1 verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so here's what that means. For you to deny or ignore or disobey God's word is for you to deny and ignore and disobey God himself. All that is true of God is true of his word. So because God is wise and true and perfect and just and loving and good and faithful, so are his words, friends, preserved for us in the canon of scripture. But, but that raises a critical question, okay? How do we know that we have the right books? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, out of all the ancient Christian writings out there. How, how do we know that we're not missing parts of Scripture that were inspired by God and or including parts that were not? Okay? Wayne Grudem's answer is insightful. Listen. The answer must ultimately be that our confidence is based on the faithfulness of God. <laughs> Hear that. We know that God loves his people and it is supremely important that God's people have his words for they are our life and all God's people said, amen. amen. They are more precious, more important to us than anything else in this world. We also know that God our Father is in control of all history and he's not the kind of father who will trick us or fail to be faithful to us or keep from us something we absolutely need. To believe that is not a leap in the dark. Some of you thought that. But it's not. Why not? Because it's the result of the Holy Spirit working, really working, because he's a real person, not a boogeyman, through the self-attesting authority of Scripture, using the Word of God to nourish our souls with the promises of a faithful God, such that we come to say with Peter in John 6, you have the words of eternal life. We experience firsthand, in other words, that the word of God is indeed living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4, verse 12. But friends, the spirit also strengthens our faith in the trustworthiness of God's word, through, through the historical data we have about God's word. 
okay? As Christians, this, this may be new to some of you, so I want you to listen very carefully, okay? The beginning of the sermon is a little different, and you'll soon see why. As Christians, we do not believe that every copy or every translation of the Bible is inerrant or inspired. Only the original manuscripts are. Okay, what, what Moses wrote, or what, what Isaiah wrote, or what Paul wrote, or what, what the Apostle John writes in the gospel we've been studying. Since, since the scrolls on which they originally wrote were, were made of, in most cases, of papyrus, which decays rather quickly, those original manuscripts are not available to us. That's a historical fact. So... How do we know what they contained with the kind of accuracy necessary in order for me to commend this book to you as the word of God and to charge you to obey it? Do you see the question? Well, the short answer is is that God's people carefully made copies of his word in God's providence and passed them down to successive generations, okay, including translations in new languages. And, and this, the process of sorting through all those ancient copies or manuscripts and, and using them to determine what, what the original manuscript said is the work of a literary discipline called textual criticism. By textual criticism, I do not mean adopting a critical stance where where we exercise some kind of human judgment over the word of God. I mean the necessary and careful work of, of recovering the original wording of scripture in the language in which it was originally written as closely as possible. Now, because I think this might be new for some of you, um, most Bible translators use footnotes in your Bible. Maybe you've seen some of these, okay, if you've read a Bible before, when there's a discrepancy that's hard to resolve in the manuscript tradition. So, for example, John 7, verse 8 Some manuscripts say, you may have seen this a few weeks ago when we were in this passage, quoting Jesus, I am not going up to this feast. Okay, flip back if you want to, look for a footnote. Other manuscripts say, quoting Jesus, I am not yet going up to this feast. Okay, most variations are very minor, like that. Some some are more significant, but all are attributed to to either an accidental or an intentional error on the part of a copyist. F.F. Bruce observes, listen carefully, when we have documents like our New Testament writings, copied and recopied thousands of times, the scope for copyist errors is so enormously increased that it is surprising there are no more than there actually are. Fortunately, If the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, 
it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is not so large as might be feared. It is in truth remarkably small. This is really important. The variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. Why not? Well, as David Allen Black notes, a doctrine that is affected by textual variation will always be adequately supported by all kinds of other passages. And, and that, let's just pause here and recognize that is a tremendous gift from God, friends. That, that should strengthen your confidence in the trustworthiness of God's word. So, so just to give you a sense of scale, okay? We, we have some 5,000 manuscripts that contain all or part of the Greek New Testament, including two complete copies that date back to around 350 AD. And some papyrus fragments, because they, they were buried deep in the sands of Egypt. That's why they lasted that long. They dated all the way back to 125 AD, which is just a couple decades after the last books of the New Testament were written. Now remember all that, and then think about this. In contrast, we only have a few hundred manuscripts of classical works of literature like Caesar's Gaelic Wars, and only 30-some for the histories of Tacitus. Latin compositions. And in both cases, both of those classical works, all right, our earliest copies were created some eight to 900 years after the original volumes were written. And yet, textual critics, including plenty of non-Christians, are confident in their ability to confirm the original text of those Latin works. No, no one runs feature stories on National Geographic questioning the authenticity of Tacitus. How much more, friends, should we trust the authenticity of the New Testament when the historical evidence for it and its original manuscripts is vastly superior. To give you a sense of scale, okay? The, the Lord has been so, so kind in preserving his word for us through human, ordinary means doing something supernatural. Sound familiar? So, let me ask the, answer the question you're probably asking, what in the world are you doing right now, Matthew? <laughs> bringing all of this up in a sermon. It's this church, not seminary. I know. 
But I'm bringing this up because many of you, if you have a Bible, probably see something between John 7.52 and John 7.53 that reads the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. Written in your margins. And you saw that and you thought, I sure hope he says something about that. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Or maybe you just see brackets around these verses. Or maybe you're reading the King James and you don't see anything different. Happy to explain why to you personally if you're interested in all the details on that. All right? Here's what's going on, okay? There is really strong historical evidence that these verses we read this morning were not part of the original spirit-inspired text of John's gospel and should not be included in the canon of scripture. That's why that's in there, those of you who saw that. And I think on balance, given the available data, I I think that's the right conclusion to make about this passage, okay? Not everybody agrees with that, but I want you to know where I'm coming from as a pastor. Let me try to explain why, real quick. Uh, For example, okay, the, the present passage is present in, in a few medieval manuscripts, but absent from nearly every early Greek manuscript. When it does show up later, like hundreds, you know, hundreds of centuries later, it's found in no less than 10 different locations, sometimes not even in John's gospel. And it contains vocabulary found for those of you who read Greek, nowhere else in the, book, in the book of John. No pastor or Christian author even quotes from these verses until after the fourth century AD. That's striking. And no one comments on them in the Greek-speaking church until the 1100s AD. So, Why is this passage still left in our Bibles? Why why do Bible translators include it? Well, well, here's why, okay? There, There remains widespread consensus that this story is authentic. What do I mean by that? It describes something that actually happened during Jesus' ministry. It simply wasn't part of the original inspired manuscript of John's gospel. Okay, just because it wasn't part of that doesn't mean it's a lie. (laughs) And the widespread consensus is that it was, in fact, authentic and historically accurate, just not part of the inspired text of the inerrant word of God. Leon Morris's perspective here is helpful, I think. The story is true to the character of Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, it's been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It rings true. Doesn't it ring true? It it speaks to our condition. It is thus worth our while to study it. Everything this passage teaches us, I'm going to attempt to show you this this morning, all right, about God and ourselves accords with sound doctrine. Everything here. And as such, it's, it's a gripping example 
of truths that are repeatedly confirmed by other passages of Scripture, which I am going to reference liberally in this sermon for that reason. So hold on to your note-taking pages. Right? There's an exchange here between the Lord and those around him from which we have much to learn. It illustrates what the entire canon of God's word already tells us is true. And so just like a sermon when I'm preaching will contain all kinds of different illustrations to help us understand things that the canon of God's inspired word says are true, I think this section in John 8 can function in a very similar, exceedingly helpful way. So I'm going to preach it as an illustration. Because the church has has really treasured this account from our Lord's life and ministry for good reason. So let me give you the main point and then we'll dive in, okay? Here's the main point. Because Jesus is full of justice and mercy, we should walk humbly before God and men. That's the main point. But because Jesus, our Lord, is full of of justice and mercy, we should walk humbly before God and men. And and I say as much for two reasons, okay? We've got two points. Let's look at them carefully. First, the justice of God exposes our sinfulness. All right, look at verse two. Verse two, Jesus arrives in the morning to teach in the temple. You've got crowds of people gathered around him and the scribes and the Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, they seize the moment to try and and trap or indict the Lord with his own words. So, So they bring a woman who was caught in adultery to Jesus and in verse four and five, they set the trap. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, now on the surface, that could seem, they sure hoped it seemed, like, like a sincere desire for counsel and how to best uphold the inerrant, authoritative, inspired law of God. But I don't think you have to look very far here to realize all is not on the up and up. It's true. Okay, in Leviticus 20 verse 10, Moses wrote, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. But that brings up a little problem, doesn't it? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Where is the man? Some of you ladies were already thinking that. <laughs> Where's the man? You know, he's, he's just as guilty under the law as she is. And besides, there were really important exceptions to the death penalty in places like Deuteronomy 22. And so so the lack of detail in their accusation reveals what? 
their lack of concern for upholding the justice of God. Even the way they refer to her in verse 5, look there, as one of such women. It, it, just, it just drips, even in the original language, with, with thinly veiled scorn. So something's terribly wrong here. I, I would argue, you don't have to read far to, to get the sense, this feels more like a lynching than an honorable trial. And that suspicion's confirmed in verse 6. Look there. They said this to test them that they might have some charge to bring against them. D.A. Carson describes this. The authorities in this case are less interested in ensuring that even-handed justice be meted out than in hoisting Jesus onto the horns of a dilemma. <laughs> That's exactly what they're doing. How, how so? What, what dilemma, Matthew? They're just asking a question. Well, it's a dilemma. And it's a dilemma I call heads, I win, tails, you lose. How so? If Jesus says yes to her condemnation, he could be charged with treason because Rome prohibited the Jewish people from exercising or inflicting the death penalty. They maintain that right. They could take him to Caesar, get him in trouble. But if Jesus says, no, she shouldn't be condemned, then what are they going to do? Charge him with heresy. Because you are denigrating the law of Moses. And, and at first, Jesus doesn't say anything. That's striking. He's obviously not intimidated by heads I win, tails you lose kinds of questions. He simply bends down and starts writing with his finger on the ground. And we do not know what he wrote. Don't ask me what he wrote. I don't know. Nobody does. But the fact that Jesus does so twice, friends, okay, once in verse 6 and then again in verse 8, suggests that that's not a minor detail. And there's different opinions on this, but, but I think the answer is found in Exodus 31, verse 18. Let, listen how Moses first received the Ten Commandments from God. And the Lord gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with what? The finger of God. When Jesus was hit with a question about upholding the law, you know what his first move was? To identify himself as the author and giver of the law. That the God who wrote with his finger on stone in the tempest on Mount Sinai was the same God writing with his finger on the temple ground in Jerusalem. Same God. And that symbolic action should have sp screamed something to those people very loudly, namely, that the greatest injustice going down right then in the whole situation was the Jewish leader's failure to recognize and honor Jesus as the eternal son of God incarnate. You want to talk injustice? Turn your eyes off the woman. Look at the son. 
Because instead of submitting to him as the rightful judge, they tried to trap him as if they were the judge. And, and the symbolic rebuke in Jesus' action there arguably was, was indirect. But his words in verse 7 were not. Look there. And as they continued to ask him, clearly missing the memo, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, lest we misunderstand Jesus' words, I want to start by clarifying what he was not saying. Listen really carefully, okay? Jesus wasn't saying that the people of God, Christians included, are disqualified from evaluating or judging other people's actions unless they are morally perfect. Hear that. The, the, why, why do I say that? Because the Lord honored Israel when she faithfully, albeit imperfectly, upheld the law under the old covenant and he commands us, Kingsway, to lovingly hold one another accountable for our actions today under the new covenant as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. For example, 1 Corinthians 5, 12. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Don't, do not ever say as a Christian, I don't judge people. God himself commands you right there to exercise the right kind of judgment. Or 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Jesus wasn't saying that unless you're perfect, you have no right to exercise judgment. Okay, so, so what was he saying? Well, he knew the scribes and Pharisees. He knows you. He, he knew the motives of their heart. He knew they didn't care about truth or justice at all. And, and, and he summoned their conscience. Think about this, to bear witness to the injustice of the entire proceeding, effectively exposing their hypocrisy. Single question. You say you're concerned about upholding the judgment of God when what you're really trying to do is render your own judgment against God by prosecuting me. You're playing God under the guise of honoring God. You're, you're using a pretense of justice to perpetuate a grave injustice. And even your pretense, hauling this woman whom you despise in front of me, is manifestly suspect according to the requirements of the law. Where's the man? Guys, you know, listen to your conscience. You know you are just as, if not more guilty in the matter at hand than she is. You, you realize Jesus wasn't, he wasn't dismissing or, or ignoring or deconstructing the law of Moses, the law of God. He simply insisted it be executed and applied with justice. 
by truthful, honest witnesses. He, he called their bluff, basically. And in the process, he reoriented the scribes and Pharisees to the justice of God. Think about that. They, they approached him pretending to be the judge. So Jesus lovingly reminded them of their true position before the judge of all the earth. Verse nine, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Do you believe that? I do. They weren't believers, you know? But I still believe that. Why? Because I've noticed that the longer you live, the harder it gets to maintain the illusion of self-righteousness. To, to deny the truth of Romans 3.23, that that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or as James says, for we all stumble in many ways. There are a lot of challenges to getting older, and I don't need to tell many of you that, but, but there is one priceless advantage. It gets just a, a little bit harder to maintain this arrogant idea that you're a good person, even in your own eyes. And, and that, friends, especially if you're older, that is a good, good, good thing. Because it's always been a lie. Even when you were younger, <laughs> that not one of us is righteous, right? We're all sinners. We're, we're all guilty in the sight of our creator, a guilt to which he will not turn a blind eye. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The, the, the real issue with, with the scribes and the Pharisees prior to Jesus intervening with his piercing question was their lack of humility before God and men. That was the issue. Does that sound familiar? We, we do that, friends, right? We, we, we do that in our friendships. We do that in our marriages. We, we do it with our children. We, we do it in the quiet of our hearts or they're not so quiet typing of our fingers toward politicians in the other party. We say we're only concerned with upholding the truth. But the the scorn in our soul, in our heart, that, that demands, that begs that, that we examine ourselves a little, a little more closely. That the next time you're evaluating or judging someone, whether in your words or in the quiet of your heart, I want you to ask yourself two questions. First, are you thinking or speaking with a self-righteous arrogance or a critical spirit as if you are a superior person? 
or are you addressing that child with the humility of a fellow sinner? Are you? Lord, have mercy. That's convicting. And second, are you showing mercy? It's related to the first. But are you showing mercy as one who desperately needs the Lord's mercy? Just as much as that person you're thinking about or talking to or typing about. Okay, that, that doesn't mean we, we ignore sin or belittle sin. You know, it, it, a horrible misapplication of this passage would be, well, we're all sinners, so, you know, I just don't judge, evaluate anybody. You be you. No. No, no, no. We don't ignore sin or belittle sin. What's this mean? It means that all our words of righteous judgment and rightful correction should be characterized by a profound gentleness and a deep compassion, a heart that, that may point out a brother or sister's weakness because you love them, but, but you're not doing it because it just bugs you or annoys you or you can't stand it if they do one, if you one more time. You're doing it because you sincerely desire them to experience and receive the mercy of God. Is that your motive? The justice of God rightly exposes our sinfulness, friends. Did then, it does today. And that's the first reason we should walk humbly before God and men, okay? Here's the second. The mercy of God enables our repentance. Praise God for both of these. His justice exposes our sinfulness. His mercy enables our repentance. Look back at verse nine. They all went away one by one and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You remember why they all left? It was because their own conscience condemned them, right? They knew they were guilty. They knew they couldn't claim to be without sin, so everyone left. Except one. Jesus remained right where he was. Why? Because he was the only one who met the standard friends. That's why. The only one without sin. In the whole place. And he still is today. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. The rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Acts 17 verse 31, God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Whether this woman knew it or not, caught in adultery as she was. According to the law of God, very well deserving to die. She was right then standing before the judge of all the earth. Do you think she knew it? I don't know. I wonder... I wonder what her conscience was doing. But how did Jesus respond? Look at verse 10. Woman, where are they? Has has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. I read that, friends. My mind, heart screams. How on earth could you say that? How could you say that? How how could the righteous judge of all the earth who confirms her guilt implicitly in verse 11 not condemn her? He's God. John 3 verse 17. Here the inerrant word of God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What? what, what? The dawn of the new covenant in Christ didn't, didn't break, come over the horizon, spiritually speaking, with an announcement of condemnation, but a call to salvation. An invitation to come and find mercy. And friend, Jesus holds out the exact same invitation to you right now today. Come to him. Find find mercy. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you hid in the privacy settings on your phone. You deserve his condemnation. Know that. Feel that. He, He owes you nothing but judgment and would be exceedingly glorified in your judgment. But there is another way for you, friend. Jesus made another way. He died on the cross, condemned by the Father on account of bearing the guilt of your sin so that you could justly find Mercy and forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the very righteousness of God. And so Jesus' words, okay? Neither do I condemn you. Could not have been more costly. Forgiveness always costs something. 
In this case, it would cost Jesus his very life. That's the good news of the gospel. It, it is the best news we could ever hear, friends. <laughs> and, and it is why I love how R.C. Sproul so well said this. The glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we needed to be saved is the very one who saved us. Isn't that true? It's stunning. But when you die, it will be entirely too late. Too late to ask Jesus for mercy. You, you have to run to him right now by faith, friend. You have to trust in this life, in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And you say to me, Matthew, what does that trust look like? How do I know if I'm doing that? Well, I'll tell you, okay? That trust looks like walking the same road that Jesus called this woman caught in adultery to walk. What's that? It's a road of repentance. The, the assurance of God's mercy waits for you on the road of repentance. Yes, Jesus refused to condemn her. He did. Okay, but he did not say, don't worry about it. We all, we all make mistakes. Just try to be the best you, you can be. No, what, what did he say? Look at verse 10. Verse 11, what did he say? Go, and from now on, sin no more. He, he beckoned that woman down the path of faith-fueled repentance. That's what he did. The, the only response, think about this, to God's mercy that guarantees your salvation on the final day, friend, is a path of transformation of life where you stop doing life on your terms and start living to please the Lord. And that's not because God's mercy has to be earned. I didn't say that. It's because a life of repentance is the surest sign, listen, that you see your need for God's mercy that you were looking to Jesus for his mercy and you have had your heart made new by the power of his mercy. Titus 2 verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, at godly lives in the present age. The grace that saves you is the grace that sanctifies you. And so friend, we just conclude by applying that reality in a couple ways. If you are hesitant to come to Jesus and follow him because you feel the depth of your sinfulness, here's what you need to do. Wait no longer. Wait no longer. The, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He, he rises to show you compassion. At the cross, God himself paid the price to satisfy his own justice. So check this out. He could justly extend to you the full weight of his mercy. So stop waiting. Stop, stop holding back. Exchange the arrogance of, of putting yourself on some kind of spiritual probation as if you were God for the humility of accepting his free offer of pardon in Christ Jesus. And if you hear me de declare the mercy of God in Christ, and you say to yourself, I've heard all this before, Matthew. 
I completely believe it. I just wish all the people who keep judging me would stop because they clearly don't believe it. Well, let me warn you because I love you. John 8 verse 11 doesn't say what the woman decided to do. Where's it end? With a choice. An invitation. It's the same choice God sets before you again today. Are you willing to repent or not? God's mercy isn't a free pass, friend. It's not. It's a kindness that leads to repentance. And if repentance is absent, then you have never encountered the mercy of God. Hebrews 10 verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that that will consume the adversaries. Nobody receives God's mercy in Christ and stays the same. Nobody. It's a mercy that changes us. It's, It's a mercy that transforms us. It's a mercy that causes us to what? Walk humbly before God and men. And if you're in a third group, and you realize you've, you've wandered off the path of following Jesus. Maybe even this week. And you're tempted to give up because you've made this same mistake over and over again. Well, I want you to remember this today. Every time you come back to Jesus, it's sincerely confessing your sin, freshly aware of your need for God's forgiveness. The Savior will greet you with the same words he spoke to that Every time. He, he doesn't tire of speaking them to you. He does not begin speaking them with, with a weary sigh after the seventh or the 77th time. His mercies are new every morning. So is his life-giving word to you, friend. On the path of repentance. A word of purpose and mission, not probation. What's he say to you? Go. From now on, sin no more. Almighty God, Christian, is more concerned with what you do from now on than he is troubled by what you did yesterday. Now that can be taken out of context. Okay, there are ways that could be qualified. But hear that. He didn't Wax introspect, well, let's talk about how you got into adultery. You know what? You sure you see all the deepest motives of your heart? I, I think you might be missing a little speck of sin down there. Just don't worry about it. I mean, just be yourself and get over it. Everybody sins. No. What did he say? I don't condemn you. I'm a God who's full of mercy, loving kindness. I'm about to die for you. And given that, go and sin no more. 
I love this passage because the justice of God here exposes our sinfulness and the mercy of God enables our repentance. And I would argue that's basically the message of the entire Bible. (laughs) Jesus is the only one, friend, who brings both those actions to pass. He's the one who, who exercises the justice of God exposing our sinfulness. And he's the one who holds out the mercy of God, enabling our repentance. When you look to Jesus, you will find what? A God who is full of justice and a God who is full of mercy. Whose mercy is just and whose justice is merciful. And therein lies a warning and an offer of comfort. So please don't get hung up on the important but not ultimately important question of should this be in the canon? Everything I've said this morning is loudly, resoundingly, repeatedly shouted from the rooftops of the entire rest of God's word. In response, we need to hold fast to Jesus And we need to walk humbly before God and men. Let's be that kind of church. These are convicting words, Father. These are sobering words. These are life-giving words. But they are both profoundly disquieting because we feel the weight of our sinfulness, our self-righteous judgments, and they are overwhelmingly comforting because they confront us once again with a scandal of your mercy. I pray especially now for my brothers and sisters who are members of this church, who will be sorely tempted this week, as I will, to presume upon your mercy and not walk a road of repentance. We ask you, Lord, in that case, for a deeper, holy fear of the holy, holy, holy God. We need your mercy. Help us to run toward it by walking in repentance. Amen.